Hi there and welcome back to the ESPN Footy Podcast. Hello everybody, welcome to the ESPN Footy Podcast for another week. Proudly sponsored by Subway, nothing's as big as a foot long. Matt Walsh and Christian Jolly from Champion Data here with you again, but no Jake Michaels, he's away this week. Uh, he's a laid out, but we do have Jared Barker joining us. Uh, he is the super sub for the week. Jared, good to have you on board to uh, jump into his place. Special guest, super sub, whatever you want to call me. But uh, no, always always good to be here and, and chat some footy with a great mind like yourself, Walshie. Uh, but yeah, interesting weekend of footy, wasn't it? Some blowouts, some thrillers, uh, and as always, plenty of talking points. Yeah, I think we learned a little bit more about some of the contenders as well, and we'll probably get into that a little bit later. But we also learned a little bit more about some of the teams who are struggling, Christian. Uh, you've had a big weekend looking up some bits and pieces for us, and uh, we're going to deep dive into... Plenty. We've got we've got a deep dive on the Eagles, and we'll get into that. We'll talk Brisbane. We'll talk the MRO, St Kilda's selling home games, Hawthorne's resurgence, a bit of NBL. Uh, so I hope you're ready for a big episode. Yeah, no, I'm ready. I'm always keen to do, uh, each week. Well, uh, before we get stuck into the episode, we do have a bit of housekeeping to do. Uh, if those of you who have listened to the pod uh, before and, and uh, are joining us again, you'll know that we've been discussing the Jared Leanett photo watch. Uh, so he plays for the Saints, used to play for the Power but they still haven't updated on his website. So what are we up to now? We've just had round seven. He's still in a port jumper underneath the, uh, the St. Kilda team really? on the AFL website. He certainly is. Seven rounds in. Yeah. So we, uh, we're lobbying the Saints and we're lobbying the AFL. Someone get a camera. Down to the What's Saints the line? Training. What's the line? Are we like round, round 10, round 11? I don't think it's going to get be fixed after. If it's not fixed after the buy round, it's never going to get fixed. Yeah. But the thing is, these players go away for the buy. It's like, imagine if you have to pull him aside. He's on his bye week and you say, <laughs> mate, we just got to get you down to the club to take a photo. Uh, I think that'd be interesting. Another one I want to bring to the table, though, um, is the Darcy Fort goal watch. So apparently, and this was the host broadcaster who brought this up, he's kicked 12 straight goals to start his career and hasn't missed yet, which is now uh, an AFL best. So I thought while he keeps playing for the Lions and keeps kicking goals, we're going to keep the Darcy Fort goal watch open. He's on 12 at the moment, having overtaken a, a trio of players who kicked 11 straight to start their careers. Uh, what's, the, what's the line there, JB? <laughs> oh, well, I think we just found our Joe Danaher replacement, did we not? What, what's he on? 12 goals. 12 goals? Kick straight. Jesus, not a bad effort for a Ruckman as well. They're normally the ones you, you probably don't want the ball in the hands of uh, inside forward 50, but no, good on him. Fair enough. It's a, it's, a, it's a nice number, but can we put the asterisks on it? I think we spoke about it a couple of weeks ago on the pod, how uh, everyone just seems to ignore missed shots whenever they feel like it. So it doesn't appear on his goals and behinds column, but he's missed the shot that he kicked out in the full round five. So he's had uh, 13 <laughs> shots at goal for 12 goals. Um, I like the 12-0 though. So we'll, we'll, we'll say that, me. but we can't say he hasn't had a miss. So I, I wonder I what his X score would be from his 12 shots. So maybe one yeah, for you, Christian. I could probably yeah, pick that up, actually. yeah. Um, there you go. I did not know that. And it's funny that that sort of stuff does slip through, but, um, yeah, you always look at the sexiest stats, the 12 goals, zero behinds, but the one out on the full little asterisk for you. Hey, something uh, from the round of footy that you notice guys, uh, well, I don't know, JB, why don't you kick us off this week with, uh, no Jake? Yeah, I think I found a new little B1, B2 in the AFL, if you like, uh, not sure if they're related. I'm pretty sure they're not, but, um, I was watching the North Melbourne and Carlton game. And Will Phillips didn't play, uh, but was wandering around in the rooms after the game. And my first thought when he popped onto the screen was, oh, yeah, that's Josh Rochelle. Oh, hang on. This is a North Melbourne game. An absolute dead ringer, let me tell you. If you get a chance, Google them both or have a look at their AFL profiles. But Will Phillips and Josh Rochelle look absolutely identical. So we, we talk about the Mackay brothers and 
are they the same person? <laughs> well, I think I think you have a look at Phillips and Rochelle. I had a little bit of research as well. Both 80 kegs, both 180 centimetres. Both Is that right? grammar boys too. So, yeah, maybe it's just one that, uh, I know, it could be because they both sport some sensational mullets, but at least at a quick glance, they look very similar. But uh, I was going to say, the mullet yeah, surely it, would bring a lot of that kind of, you know, you just go, oh, from behind, definitely. But you think when, they, when they're facing the camera and everything? It does, but then I did a little bit of research and they're more alike than we think. So, yeah, just a little, mm. little weird one there. B1 and B2. Christian, what have you got for us? Uh, yeah, I got a couple. Probably uh, one um, missing Jake for this one, but noticed uh, the eighth player of all time to get a thousand meters in a game. Uh, Tom Stewart uh, for the Cats against the Dockers on Saturday afternoon um, finished with over a thousand meters. So that's the first eighth time it's ever happened, and the first time since 2017. So I know Jake likes his meters gain stats. Uh, but another one I noticed, I think we've talked about on the podcast, uh, we, we always look at teams' form. So we all get to this stage of the season, we start to look at the last four or five weeks for a lot of our team reports and team analysis we do for the clubs. And I was looking into Melbourne this week, and just one of the stats I uh, stumbled across for them. So when they've turned the ball over in their attacking midfield, so basically centre-half forward region of the ground, when they turn, turn the ball over there the last four weeks, uh, which has been 68 times, they've conceded one score against. So comp average is about four scores per game coming from that zone per team per game. Uh, Melbourne have been scored against once, once they've turned the ball over in sort of their centre-half forward line, if you if you like to think of that. So again, it's just that ultimate setup of once they've got the ball in hand and they kick forward to the centre-half forward line, they're, they're set behind the ball good enough to, you know, as I said, most, most teams have... Uh, conceded at least 16, 15, 17 scores in the last four weeks. Melbourne are just at one. So uh, mm. just another stat wow. to show you how strong Melbourne are. You've talked a lot about on, on this pod about how the the teams with premiership credentials are scoring from turnovers. Could you then argue that arguably if you're stopping teams from scoring from turnovers, as the teams seem to be doing, that that's equally as important for Yeah. For, I mean, you yeah. look at them, they're probably the flag favourite. Yeah, and that's a, and that's one way we look at it. I mean, it's it's good to be able to score from your turnovers, but again, another another qualify we put on is outscoring your opposition from their turnovers as well which again is part of that top six premiership standards thing so uh yeah as i said we'll talk about melbourne and we we'll spoke about melbourne now we'll talk about brisbane soon but they're the two best teams in it at the moment you clarified something for well can you sorry you clarified something on the darcy fort uh little asterisk before the tom stewart one's interesting you're talking about a thousand meters i had a look on the afl side and it said he had 962 meters gained can you explain the discrepancy there no, I can't. I'll, have to, see the, I'll have to see the website. No, they should have, they should have over a thousand. I mean, as I said, there's effective meters gained, which I don't think is on the AFL website anyway. And he was down at 820. So we did have 200 or so meters gained, which were ineffective or turnover disposals. Um, but now I'd have to see the number you're, you're looking at because it should be, um, yeah, it should be the same number as total meters gained across the yeah. game. Well, while you're looking at Did up, you have um, any, go on. any assisted meter, meters gains as well, Christian? Uh, I've sure. got the number in front of me, but yeah, I think it was, um, stop my head. I think, yeah, he's still about two or 300 meters gain. So, again, because he's coming out of the back line as well, he can kick at 50 meters to a guy that's in half back who still gets another, you know, 50 meter kick down the line. So, it's, yeah. it's a little bit different assisted meters to what we look at as, you know, Clayton Oliver and that feeding out the handball, but mm. probably just the way he played. And he, again, but it was a 40 disposal game. I think he had 11 intercepts as well. So, it wasn't just standing to the side and receiving a handball and kicking long. He was actually finding the ball himself and getting Yeah, I've just. I've just looked it up. 962 on the AFL stats page as meters gained. Uh, and I'm assuming that their meters gained is just the, the bog sort of standard. 
anyway, we can get that one cleared up. But Are while... you trying to debunk champion data, Matty? Well, he's debunked one of mine, so maybe I'll debunk one of his. <laughs> <laughs> um, while you might be clarifying that, Christian, uh, the thing I noticed was, uh, same game, uh, before the, the Geelong-Fremantle clash, uh, the host broadcaster Fox was doing a little interview with uh, Jeremy Cameron. They were walking through the half-forward line. And uh, I think it was Mark Howard was interviewing, and they were talking about um, Jeremy Cameron and Tom Hawkins' farming prowess and their abilities. And apparently Jeremy Cameron's gotten into the farming recently and has, quote-unquote, a few cattle on his property. Um, but apparently... Jeremy, so Jeremy said that Tom has about 30 or 40 head of cow on his farm. So I'm thinking, given they're one and three on the Coleman medal tally at the moment, maybe that's the secret to becoming a really good, strong forward is to be this sort of farm strong cow collecting farmer that uh, gets up at, you know, 5am to help milk the cows or, or, you know, raise the steers for a bit of meat out the back and, and, and get a bit of farm strength in you because it's just too much of a coincidence that they were before this weekend leading the Coleman one, two, uh, and they've both got head of cattle on their farms. We reckon it's a like Mike sort of situation, a natural influx of milk, never-ending milk that they've got. Yeah, a few extra little bits of calcium in the diet. You never know. I mean, this is the sort of stuff that I I kind of percolate on over the weekend when I've got a few minutes to myself, Uh, which in any case. Uh, Christian, have you got anything for us? With what? With the meters gain. Oh, sorry. Um, No, again, I'm just looking it up. We've got 1,025 and everything I can see. And as I said, um, AFL.com do take our feed. So I'll, I'll... Seriously, I have to chase that up to see why their number is differing. But yeah, everything we've got for that game is 1,025 metres. There you go. Very interesting. Hey, one figure we won't disagree on uh, is 109. That's the margin between West Coast and Richmond on Friday night. A bit of a grim kind of game, really. uh, And save for when Josh Kennedy kicked his 700th goal uh, for the Eagles, which is uh, a magnificent achievement. Uh, there wasn't much to cheer about for West Coast fans. And we did foreshadow this on the podcast last week, Christian, that we would look at the Eagles and kind of what's gone wrong there, looking at their list profile, their game style, which you've got a caveat about as well at the moment. Um, but I, where do we want to start with the Eagles, JB? Because watching that game on on Friday night, I think five minutes in, I sort of said to myself, I'm like, this is, this is hard to watch already. Uh, and it only got progressively harder and harder because the, the standard was nowhere near what we've come to expect from an AFL side. And there's no feeling sorry for them. They're a professional football club. There's no excuses for where they're at. They just need to own it as a football club, I think. But it's interesting because how long has it been since the Eagles have been really challenged like this as a club? They've been perennial finalists for how long now? But this is an incredibly grim situation for for one of the AFL's last three premiers. Uh, It's concerning, but I think they... They need a blank canvas and just start again. I'm, I'm afraid to say it, but I think that's the way to go now because they can continue to fill the gaps like they have been and recruit like they have been and, and be happy to be a middle-of-the-rung team, uh, which they can easily be uh, at their best and, and on paper. You look at the names they've got. They've got a quality number of players that have played finals footy and, and they're a group that have played in some big games in the last three years. But that's going to leave them what, in, in an even deeper hole really so i think the only way out unfortunately is to start again which makes me almost feel sorry for guys like langdon petrovsky set and even even tim kelly you know players that they've topped up with to maximize their window of opportunity that they thought they had so some tough calls are going to need to be made and you look at their list and everyone talks about it you know hearn 34 years old Cripps 30 kennedy 34 shuey 31 redden 31 nat and 31 
Gaffin Darling 29, Yo 28, but turning 29, it, it's quite damning. And I had a look before, they have 27 players, if my research is accurate, 27 players out of contract at the end of the year, which does include top-up players, it, it must be said, but it also includes guys like Witherden, Jermaine Jones, Kennedy, Shuey, Nick Nat, Hearn, Cole, Rioli, Ainsworth. But I think it has to be a Hawthorne style, letting go of guys who are still contracted to finally get some draft picks in and that have eluded you for so many years. So you look at Campbell Chester, they picked up last year and looks a really progressive type. Their first first round pick since Jared Brander in 2017, who isn't even there anymore. That, that's a big problem because it's obvious now that they're relying on depth given the COVID complications and the injuries that they've sustained this year that, they just don't have the same quality of young players coming through as other teams. This season could almost be a blessing in disguise because of that. Because well, I was going to say, sure. yeah, even looking at what you just said about the end of the season and all those players coming out of contract, I think that's almost how they have to look at that. And that's a blessing in disguise in terms of, well, we need yeah. to start again. We need a blank canvas. And we've got all these guys coming out of contract. I wouldn't have realised it otherwise. So, yeah. So, again, it's probably one of those things they need to flip on their heads. Instead of saying, oh, no, we've got all these guys we've got to resign. It's like, oh, great. We've got 28 options now that we can either resign, mm. flip for something else or try to get value of. So, I think that's where they have to approach this off-season in terms of they have to be willing to uh, look at and, you know, accommodate for change. They've had a tough I don't actually think no you doubt. can blame them, though. You can't blame them for the decisions that they've made. No, Sorry, Matt. Absolutely like in the, not. In the you last couple because... of years, because they've they've pursued Tim Kelly heavily because they were bolstering what was a pretty serious midfield group in a team that they thought still had a premiership window open. So as a club, if you believe that, you have to do what you can to capitalise on that because premierships are so hard to win. We know that. You need to stay ahead of the pack and ridding themselves of draft picks to secure a Tim Kelly type. At the time, was probably the right decision, but in hindsight, well, hindsight's a wonderful thing, isn't it? You, you respect what they've been able to do and achieve as a group, but you know, unfortunately, their best players just aren't getting any better anymore. Well, yes. 2018, you win a flag. You can't argue with that at all. 2019, 2020, and to a lesser extent, 2021, you think, well, we're still a chance here. 2020, shortened year, a lot of teams on the road. You may be able to sort of, you know, pull one out of midair. Last year, it started to kind of, you know, fall apart a little bit. But, you know, the, the temptation of a home final series and a potential home grand final was probably you know, at the forefront of their mind about sort of loading up and, and trying really hard. And, and you kind of look at the list and, and you went through the names and the ages before, JB. But yes, they've had a tough year and they've had to bring in a lot of top-up players. But Christian, you were saying some stuff uh, from the weekend that like their list profile on the weekend was, was old. Yeah, they were back to the second oldest. So as I said, you know, a lot of it was taken out of their hands early in the season, but came into round one, they had the sixth oldest team, uh, had a fair few injuries there. Round two was the game they played against North Melbourne, um, travelled over here with about, I think they had six top-up players from the Waffle um, and basically just used all the remaining players on their list. They, they got to the eighth oldest that round, so they still weren't running around like a bunch of kids, you know, ranking uh, really, really low for age. Since that round two game, uh, their rankings for age each round have gone from sixth, fourth, third, second, second. So back up to the second oldest team this this uh, round just gone, which just shows they're sort of, you know, that they haven't accepted whatever, the, whatever word they want to build, whether they're in transition or a rebuild or they're blooding youngsters or whatever they haven't shown anything in the first seven weeks that actually shows that they're going to stick with some of these younger guys that were, they were forced to give a game too early in the season. And I just looked at, you know, they've had six debutants this year. Um, and of those debutants, you know, Greg Clark just played on the weekend, had a great game, but he's 24 years old out of the waffle. So he's another one you bring in for just a to top up for, um, 
you know, a, a, an already established midfield, which, you know, the injuries have decimated their midfield this year. Another debutant, Luke Stranatica, uh, 24, almost 24 and a half. One of their top-up players, Aaron Black, who counts as a debut. He was 29 and a half. He's been playing, you know, 10 years in the waffle. And then their three youngsters, they had Callum Jamison play this year, Jack Williams and Brady Hoff, who were, you know, not huge names, pick 49, pick 57 and pick 31 in the draft. So, yeah, they've got a, ga- a couple of games into those guys, but they're not what you call high-end talent that are coming in and just, yeah, and, and you know, taking high in the draft and getting games to within the first three or four years. They're just, as um, as JB just said, they, they haven't had many, dra- you know, top 10 draft picks in the last five years. And one of those they've traded away in Jared Brander, uh, traded two away for Tim Kelly, which just leaves that big hole. So they've got Campbell Chesser, uh, top 20 pick, top 20 pick from the 2017 draft. Then they've got a top 20 pick from the 2016 draft, which is Sam Petrovsky seaton uh, who they just traded for and a top uh, 20 pick from the 2014 draft, Liam Duggan. So from those past eight or so drafts, they got three top 10 picks from their list. And it sort of just, it shows you they're just devoid of that young high end talent. The, the thing that kind of strikes me and, and we've talked about the AGS, but they've got 10 players on the list who have played 200 or more games. And, and they're your kind of dependable names that are probably most, most would make up their one, you know, seven or eight or nine of their 10 best players would be in that, that group. But then they've got 25 players who have played 20 games or, or less. And there just seems to have been a real disconnect over the last few years. And yes, it can be explained by wanting to push hard for a, while the premiership window though is open. But the gap between these kind of experienced players and, and, and the lack of experience is just so jarring that when you do roll out an inexperienced side, not necessarily a young side, you are going to struggle. And I think this was kind of an, an inevitable kind of move for the Eagles that we discussed this last year, that they were going to fall off a cliff at some point. Um, but you suspect that it's it's probably still not the worst that we're going to see. Um, given the age of some of these players, you, you know, Kennedy, 34, Hearn, 34, Nick Nat, 31, how much longer are they going to go? So, and JB, you talked about embracing a build or a rebuild. Who's got value at the Eagles? Because I'm looking at this list and I can tell you now, it's not much as getting you a first round draft pick at the trade table. No, not, and I said on paper, you know, they might have some quality players and that's and that's fine but you look at jeremy mcgovern's probably the main one a, a center half back that a club like carlton might actually need this year but other than him oscar allen they're not getting rid of him he's their next number one focal point real spearhead in the forward line tom barras the same as allen but down back they can't get rid of him they're probably the ones of most value um that they're not going to let go of but who's worth more at other clubs than they are at West Coast. McGovern's probably the standout, and I don't see anyone else. Maybe a Liam Ryan? Potentially. Liam Ryan, 25. Like He's got age on his side. Liam Duggan, maybe, 25 as well. Uh, but I'm, I'm looking at, the, at some of the other names. You look at Andrew Gaff, who four years ago uh, would have was commanding a million dollars a year as a wingman. He'd be worth pennies on the dollar at the moment. Um, Tim Kelly, you brought him in and you paid so much for him. I don't think you're going to be sending him out the door if even if it does you know help the the build so to speak um dom sheed 27 probably has a little bit of value but i don't think he's commanding a first round pick no it's it's damning isn't it i just don't see it is a blank canvas that they need to work with but i just don't see how they're going to get out of this rut without and they're not going to get a lot of you know high-end draft picks for these players what what can you actually expect say you're you're saying okay jeremy mcgovern it's been great to have you, mate, but we do have to let you go. This is the direction the club's going in. What what can they expect to actually get from these type of players? I think Elliot Yo is another one, a, a really experienced midfielder, injury prone, but one of those type of players who, while we haven't probably seen him at his best in the last two seasons, 
can turn a game on its head. Um, you know, what, what's he worth? What, what can West Coast actually accept for these type of players when you are pushing them out the door? We've seen it with clubs like Collingwood and Hawthorne in the last couple of years. They're not, they're not sitting on a war chest. They're not with the upper hand when you're the one that's letting go of these players. So I'm not sure they're actually going to get a lot back for these players, but it's a risk that they need to take and a decision that they need to make. Otherwise, they're going to fall into a deep hole. Christian, you've looked at lists, you know, for years and years and years and, and profiles and game styles and all that sort of stuff. Is it going to get worse for West Coast before it gets better? Uh, yeah, you'd think so. And again, it, it is. It's just that it's exactly how you summed it up before. It's that big gap between they've got their veterans that are on their way out and they've got the youngsters that are starting in, but they don't have enough 80 to 100 to 120 gamers that are going to help that transition of these younger guys are actually going to mould into these older guys because we've got these, you know, conduits in the middle that are going to show them how to act. So it is, it's almost going to get to a stage, um, you know, you'd think probably this stage next year, you'd hope they're in the bottom four youngest teams in terms of if the future's looking bright for West Coast. Because if they're still one of the four oldest teams next year, um, no matter the win-loss results, you're still looking at West Coast thinking, well, that list is still in desperate need of a recharge and a rebuild. So hopefully this is what kicks it into gear is this, these types of results this year. Um, Who would you rather be, West Coast or North Melbourne right now? See, I, I got asked this question three weeks ago. And if I was coaching for this year, you'd want West Coast. West Coast and exactly that because you've got Hearn McGovern and exactly it's that it's that selfish, oh, yeah. I'll, I'll take the guy, the, the club with the stars because they're, they're going to be pretty safe for me in the next five weeks. But you're right. If you're looking for something for the next five years, I think North clearly come up ahead at the moment. Uh, we said that it's probably going to get worse for the Eagles before it gets better. We can't look much further ahead than this upcoming week because they've got Brisbane at the Gabba. Uh, and we look at Brisbane and their season. I think they're emerging as a clear number two seed in the AFL at the moment. Uh, 106 and a half points per game, by far the, the, the number one team in the league for, for, for attacking prowess. Uh, JB, we were joking before the podcast, but they could well put 200 on the Eagles, the Lions. They will score 200 points this weekend, Brisbane. Don't worry about no Joe Danaher. They will score 200 points. I'm saying it right here, right now. Remember where you were, where you heard me say it. Um, <laughs> But no, aren't they just thrilling to watch, really, that that sort of Alakaban slingshot style that they play, their transition from defence to attack is just so sound. And, you know, you talk about their ability to score goals. And while Danaher is going to be somewhat of a loss, they don't really strike me as a team that need to change too much to actually fill those shoes because they're still playing with that Oscar McInerney and Darcy Fort combination that doesn't need to really change at all. One ruck, one rest forward. Um I don't think they get much out of Danaher pinch hitting in there anyways. Eric Hipwood will come back later in the year, uh, which helps, but they have more than enough threats in the forward 50. Dan McStay has had a superb season. You've got Charlie Cameron down there, uh, Lincoln McCarthy, Zach Bailey. Uh, I think Callum Archie is quite underrated. He's playing a real good role up forward for him. Cam Rayner, he adds another dimension and we're still probably yet to see the best of him this season. So while it's... It's going to be interesting to see, I guess, what the mix is that they go with without Danaher. I don't think it's going to hinder them too much because their scoring power is just immense, as you as you said, Maddie. And that's based on system, in my opinion, not personnel. So, um, yeah, look, the other thing is, can Hipwood, McStay and Danaher actually all play in the same team later in the year? Like, if they can, and I imagine they'll trial that this season at some stage when they're all available because they probably can't, 
die wondering this season when they've lost so many finals in the last three years. And, and I think it means Darcy Fort is probably that one that loses his spot eventually because you'd rather a, a goal kicker in there, especially with the way that Chris Fagan likes to play. Um, and when you already have a number one ruck in McInerney, it probably makes sense that he's going to be the one that loses his spot. But it's not like we're going to find out this week, given you can't really look too much into a game against West Coast, which they're going to win easily. But it's an interesting case study, I guess, for the rest of the year, how they actually fill the uh, the hole left by Danaher, which I don't think is going to hamper them too much. It's funny because you look at footy and you can you say week to week, you know, there's, there's no certainties in footy. There's always, you know, the possibility of something happening out, outside of the box. But I, I, I'm with you. I cannot, cannot see West Coast winning this game at all because the Gabatois is back. Uh, if you look at their home and away record at the mm. Gabba, the Lions, over the last three and a bit years, they've won 29 of their past 30 there. Uh, with one loss coming to the Swans, I think it was round one, 2021. Uh, so their their home and away record at the Gabba is just about perfect. And I just cannot, there's just no way I can see, it, well, many teams, let alone a West Coast side that is coming off a 109-point shellacking and, and lacking confidence and lacking personnel doing this. Christian, I mean, you've, you've watched the, the Lions pretty closely and JB sort of touched on it, but it's their, their spread from defense and the breadth of attacking options that they have, which just makes them so good to watch. Yeah, they are. And I'll sort of go back to the, you know, the Gabatar point that you just made that in terms of, I looked at it as well, just, they, they score so much better at home and they probably, you know, struggle slightly away. They're 92 points per game at the Gabba uh, in the last three years, which is most of any team um, conceded 69. So they're plus, you know, 23 points when they play at the Gabba, but even away from the Gabba, they score 87 points per game, which is the most of any team. So Take out all the take out Gabba and include all the other venues in the country, and they're still the number one scoring team. So it doesn't really matter where they play; they're able to score. Um, and we talk, you know, talk about it on the podcast every week in terms of scoring profiles. And a lot of teams might be good at scoring from intercepts or scoring from turnovers or scoring from certain zones. Uh, Brisbane number one points from intercepts, number one points from uh, clearances as well. So got both of the game, um, you know, two major parts of the game down pat. Uh, number one's for scoring a goal once inside fifty. And the big one for me is they're number one from scoring from D50 chain. So, again, like what I sort of mentioned about Hawthorne earlier, beautiful ball movement. It makes it easier on the eye and you sort of get excited watching that. Um, and they're very strong at sort of, you know, scoring from forward half and sort of, you know, they've got to, they're in the positive cont- contested possessions. But the one sort of asterisk I have on them is they've conceded the fifth most inside 50s of any side this year, which is just completely out of whack with all the other top eight teams. So, I'm with you. Clearly number two seed to Melbourne, but there is that one part of their game where they still can't control the territory like other dominant teams have in the past. So they are relying on this beautiful ball movement from end to end, which is stacking up well at the moment. But again, you talk about sustainability and whether you can hold up four weeks of finals and scoring from defensive 50 across finals to win, you know, three or four finals might be a bit of a stretch for them. Mm. That's probably not the most alarming stat at this stage of the season. I mean, if you're scoring 92 points per game at home over the course of three years, uh, you, know, you know, we've been talking about scores over the last couple of years on this podcast and how they've been trending, you know, negatively for, a, for many years now, basically. Um, to, even though you're giving up those inside 50s because you're scoring so much, especially at home, uh, but even away as well, I, I don't think it's a massive concern. Speaking of concerns though, JB, do we find, I mean, you touched on it a little bit, but the Danaher hole left are we concerned by this for the for the next few weeks or is it just going to be a, a case of next man up and, and the system works well that's what i said i, I think they're a system-based team and the yeah. personnel isn't actually going to hurt them at all and 
I don't, again, we can't really look at it this week. They're versing West Coast. Um, it's going to be an easy win, so we're not going to look uh, too much into that. But again, when you've got guys like Charlie Cameron, Zach Bailey uh, kicking goals, they're getting a lot of goals from their midfielders too. Lockie Neal has become a real, real forward 50 threat when he goes down there. Jared Lyons, Hugh McLuggage can mm. control Dane's down there as well. Been so. across half forward again. Exactly, and he had another depth to the forward 50 mix-up. So, yeah, I don't think it's going to be too stressful for them. While it is a big loss, Joe Danaher, they're, they're pretty much their number one key forward. Um, I think they're going to still find a way to score and score pretty heavily. Uh, Christian, you came up with an interesting stat uh, in the pre-pod. I think it was in the pre-pod. It wasn't during the intro, was it? About Joe Danaher at the Lions? No, it was, yeah, surprising. It was one of those ones, or how do they go without Joe Danaher? And I thought, oh, how have they gone without him? He hasn't missed a game <laughs> since when he arrived there. So I think he had a durability rating of about 25% in his last three years at Essendon. So he could only get on the part for one in four weeks. But uh, yeah, hasn't missed a game yet at Brisbane. And this is, I don't know, is, is, are they confirmed that he's a definite out this week? They were actually going to look into, yeah, they were actually, well, in terms of, I think he, he'll be out this week, but in terms of surgery versus letting it rest, I was sort of looking into that a little bit. It's, they haven't even guaranteed he's out for six weeks, is it? It could be a two-week injury and they try to shoulders, play through it, isn't it? I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. Shoulders are always those ones. You, you can play through it. You can mm. you can play through it, but if it pops out again, then he probably will have to go in for surgery and miss the rest of the season. So it's risk versus reward, which they have to weigh up. Mm. I'd be surprised, yeah, if he plays this week. You wouldn't play I'd this week, but yeah, you might not miss too many, so... I mean, given the way that they're going, yeah, you'd probably say get right for finals because that's when uh, the heat's on and that's when Brisbane have traditionally over the last few years struggled a little bit, yeah. uh, especially with accuracy. So it'd probably be important to have their... Where does the Gabba rank, do you think, in terms of a for, an, an AFL fortress? We talk about how hard it is to win at Geelong. Um, 29 of their Perth, last 30 West home Coast. and away games. It's not bad. Yeah. Um, obviously, their record in finals, a little bit different. Uh, yeah, well, maybe we'll have to set you a task, Christian, about the best fortresses in footy. I'd, 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 be leaning, I'd be leading to uh, GMHBA when it was called Cadinia Park or something. I think they were up to about 24 in a row or 34 in a row there over three or four years uh, a while ago. Go. But yeah, just touching, going back a point on West Coast. Um, another thing I noticed when you talk about playing for a home final and things like that, well, they can't rely on that anymore either. They're, they're two of 11, two of their past mm-hmm. 11 at Optus Stadium, West Coast to one. So again, you talk about previous fortresses and that was probably more Subiaco and um, West Coast in Perth always had that fortress, but they've even lost that since halfway through last year. Mm, St. Kilda in Cairns is quite the fortress as well. Well, speaking of, we might actually, that's a nice little segue from you. Uh, we might talk about that. We've been doing X scores, so expected scores a bit on the podcast where we look at teams and, and the scores they are expected to post from where they're kicking the ball on the ground, the amount of pressure they're under and, and a couple of other little bits and pieces and factors. Um, the Saints and Port, it was a pretty shocking game, let's be honest. The conditions weren't great up in Cairns. Uh, it ended up being a 43-42 to 42 finish. Uh, the power got the chocolates, and St Kilda have thrown away a second straight year, a, a game that they've hosted in Cairns. They lost to the Crows last year, and they lost the Port on the weekend. Um, firstly, I guess, Christian, looking at the X scores, surely the Saints, who kicked four goals, 18, I believe, should have won that game based on, on their expected scores. Yeah, well... Yes, they, they should have definitely won the game. So that was the one game this weekend where expected scores had flipped the result to the actual scores um, that had St Kilda winning. But again, both teams sort of suffered. So Port Adelaide scored uh, 43 points, as you said. They were expected to score 54 and a half. So 11 and a half point drop off there. 
uh, which was the second biggest sort of drop-off of the weekend. And then St Kilda were expected to score 67, scored 42. So a 25-point drop-off there. So across the game, the, the two teams between them left six goals sort of uh, due to bad accuracy from that. But again, expected accuracy probably doesn't look at venue, humidity and all that sort of stuff. Because I, I just watch, I struggle to watch football in Cairns. I, I don't remember the last time I've seen a good quarter of footy in Cairns, let alone a good game. So it, it was one of those ones where... Uh, teams should have been kicking a lot more accurately, but I feel like, yeah, a lot of the Cairns games, you can, can talk about just the overall skill drops away. It seems like a very strange choice of venue to sell games to, considering where St Kilda normally plays, under the pristine mm-hmm. marble roof. Um, the grass is perfect. There's no moisture on the field. For them to go up to a tropical paradise, no doubt, uh, but where the, the ball is dewy, where the conditions are humid, wet, difficult wind no grandstands it just strikes me as really strange jb that that's kind of where they would choose to sell their games but i guess that you know money does talk it is strange it is a very strange decision but it's one that you can probably understand that we need to remember there is a commercial aspect of football clubs given they are their own organizations as well and if you're a club like st kilda and you have been in debt you need to make a net return and the only way to do that well one of the avenues to do that is through selling your home games and if that's the way that they see fit i.e selling your home game um to bring in some more financial stability then that's probably what they have to do from a club point of view now at the expense of potential four points is it worth it we'll probably sit here and say no because the amount of games that they've sold over the years to these venues it's not the first time they've lost here they lost against the crows last year and they missed how much did they miss finals by? Was it one game? One game and a bit of percentage. But let me just interrupt you briefly to look at their their sold home games over the last sort of eight to nine years. 2022, lost on the weekend by a point to Port Adelaide. 2021, Kazali Stadium in Cairns again. They lost by six points to Adelaide. In 2019, they lost a home game in Shanghai, 70 points to Port Adelaide. In 2015, 2014 and 2013, they played in Wellington in New Zealand, lost all three of those games, 40 points to Carlton, three points to Brisbane, 16 points to Sydney. So that's six home games sold over the last nine seasons for zero wins. Net money gain, sure. I think they were getting between six mm. and 650,000 per game in Cairns. But what, what is, it, is it worth it? I mean, if, if St Kilda misses finals again this season, for instance... Uh, and miss out on selling tickets to finals, miss out on merchandise sales, miss out on future members. Where do you draw the line of, of, of profit over points? But that's the thing. It's always should have, would have, could have. We, we can't sit here and guarantee that they would have beaten Port Adelaide if they were playing under the Marvel Stadium roof. Good they point. play there. That's their home game. And they love those, those sort of drier, slicker conditions, which probably suits the way that they actually play. Um, we can sit here and say, oh, they probably would have won home ground advantage. Uh, the, the wet weather didn't suit them. But you know what? Footy is a winter sport and they're going to play games without a roof this year. And if it's raining in those games and they lose those games, it's probably not because of the venue. I think it's it's something that the Saints and Brett Ratton might actually need to learn. And I think it could hold them in good stead for later in the year. If they play a final, if they do scrape in and it's a rainy day, maybe they take some learnings from this game in Cairns. Although the conditions are different, it was still a wet slop and absolute, it was more of a rugby game than, than an Aussie rules game um, from the naked eye. But it can probably hold them in good stead. But yeah, what 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 is it worth? Is it the cost of four points? Is it actually worth it? I don't think we can actually sit here and say 
if it is or not, because there's no guarantee that they would have even beaten Port Adelaide under the Marvel Stadium roof because the conditions didn't suit Port either. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you look at the Ds over the last few years, Northern Territory, they've been relatively successful. Um, I guess there's an aspect mm-hmm. of trying to make it feel like a, a home, gra- home ground and home game as much as possible as well, um, which might be tough to do in Cairns. But uh, look, at the end of the day, if Max King slots an extra goal or the Saints don't fluff an opportunities, no one's really talking about this. Uh, it's just that they, they kick four goals for the entire game. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, missed out on the four points and we've been taught, you know, pretty positive about yeah. the Saints in recent weeks. But uh, like I said, if, if, if they nailed even a couple of those missed chances, no one's talking about it in this kind of detail. Two goals, 15, they scored after quarter time, I think it was. So I think that's what probably cost them the game. Let me let me ask you, if you are on the St Kilda board, are you selling uh, a game or two to Cairns again next season? I would probably request not to play one of the most winningest teams of the last two to three years there if I'm going to request anything at all. I mean, yes, Port's been pretty poor to start this season, uh, but over the last two or three years, I mean, Christian, you, you, you've spoken about that on the pod before, but their, you know, their record over the last two or three years is the best of any club in, in, the, in the land. So requesting to play Port there, I thought was a strange decision to begin with. Um, look, like you like said, said. The, the money is important for some of these clubs that do struggle, and I get I that, get- um, but you can kind of be a bit more strategic about it as well, I think. Moving on, uh, there was, speaking of under the, the roof of Marble Stadium, JB, a couple of interesting moments between Carlton and North Melbourne where uh, the MRO has become involved and handed out a few suspensions. So three suspensions, Liam Stocker for his bump on Taron Thomas. We had uh, Lewis Young on Cam Zerha, front on contact, so rough conduct. I think it was a rough conduct charge. I don't think it was a high high contact charge. And Nick Larkey tunneled Lewis Young as well. Uh, all resulted in a one-week ban bit of conjecture about a couple of these. I want to, I want to run both of these past you. Firstly, the, the Lewis Young one on Cam Zerha, a lot of outrage from Carlton fans who think a fair bump, didn't get him high, should be play on. He's been given the week, but as we've discussed on this podcast for, for a couple of years now, uh, and as we've come to learn and expect from the AFL and the MRO, if you choose to bump in a situation where a bump can be avoided, you're going to be in trouble. Um, yeah, I'm a little bit bemused by the public outcry with this. There's just no debate with the Lewis Young incident. And I'm sorry, if your argument is, oh, the bum's dead, which I've, I'm seeing a lot of, um, you know, Zerha came back on, how can it be a suspension? Well, it's because you obviously didn't get the memo and it's a dangerous game that we're playing now when, when there are even there are maybe some commentators who may not completely understand the, the important shift in perspective. I guess if the AFL is trying to stand by this season, it, it filters through to the AFL audience and those who are consuming the game and, and footy fans in general who then can't understand the new rules. And that's the important part. They're new rules. It's clear. No longer should the outcome of an incident determine the severity of a suspension because as the AFL effectively noted by taking this stance, we're waiting until there's an on-field fatality if that's still what we're living by, you choose to bump yourself for the consequences. We need to punish the action, not the outcome. And it's that potential to cause injury is an aspect of the MRO findings that I think the AFL needs to be applauded for because if we're serious about, you know, maybe not completely eliminating concussion, which I think is impossible in a contact sport, but if we're serious about lowering the impact or the amount of concussion that we're seeing in games, then cop the fact that Lewis Young deserves to be suspended. I, I, it's not hard for me. We need to change. And but accepting I, this mantra is the only way that we'll get it. 
agree with a lot of your points, Bart. I just want to ask, what happens when or if it gets overturned tonight? Where are we at then as a game in terms of, well, Michael Christian's got a sheet that he marks with XXXXX and he gets to this point where a guy misses a, a week. But then when they appeal and they actually get it down to, you know, these categories come down to XXX, yeah. like, where is, how can we make Michael Christian's job easier? But he that's doesn't the, get this. Has already know, happened that's this year. Consistent yeah. part of the AFL. The, the, is, it's already happened this year with the Willie Rioli on Matt Rowell incident. JB. Yep, yep, and that's that's what just baffles me as well is how yeah the fact that Willie Rioli was actually let off that when the potential to cause injury in that instance was just in my opinion absolutely severe. So yeah, I, I worry that the Lewis Young incident. I think it was graded as. Uh, medium was a oh, high, high, high impact. impact into the body, yeah, yeah. And, and that's that can easily be classified as medium impact because Cam Zerha uh, played out the rest of the game. But my point is that shouldn't matter anymore. If the AFL is serious about stamping this sort of stuff out and taking into consideration the potential to cause injury, then that has to stay as high impact. And you know that that's what Carlton are going to argue, but unfortunately, there are still some wrinkles with this new uh, interpretation, I guess, that need to be ironed out. So I think we can we can kind of agree as a, as a board here that MRO gets the tick for the decision that was made. But ultimately, and I can see this happening tonight, you know, we're recording this on Tuesday afternoon. So if you're listening after Tuesday evening, you'll know the result. But I get the feeling that this will be overturned by the tribunal. So I think the issue mm. now is the AFL is going to have um, the, this, this disconnect between the MRO and the tribunal is the next thing that needs to be fixed. I think the actual grading and the, the you know, the, the high medium impact, the, the, the potential to cause injury, all this sort of other stuff. I think the MRO's um, uh, like guidelines are pretty sound, but I think the disconnect between what the tribunal is allowed to kind of wriggle things down to and, and boil things down to uh, just is so far from what the AFL and the MRO want that at the moment, it's just too inconsistent for it to be a successful, uh, a successful system. It is, but why does it happen? They should all be on the same page. Everyone got the memo. The yeah. action needs to be punished more than the over the outcome. So I don't understand why we still have this conjecture, as you say. Uh, and and Willie Rioli was Exhibit A. Yep. Uh, well, it'll be a fascinating week at the tribunal, uh, but I also think it'll be a fascinating sort of next six to 12 months as the AFL continues to protect the head, protect the player, um, and, and limit the potential to cause injury with these sort of, um, these sort of incidents. And, and I'm really interested to sort of see how the tribunal uh, evolves as a result of this as well. Uh, there was another one just quickly before we do move on, um, Nick Larkey tunneling on Lewis Young. So Lewis Young involved in a couple of incidences. Uh, Larkey was given a week. The ball had been called dead. The umpire blew their whistle um, quite a fair bit before the ball got towards Young, who was uh, just jumping up to take a mark. Larkey intentionally went to tunnel him. Only one week, that kind of disappoints me i must say guys um not not just as a as a carlton fan so to speak but i think that incidences likely to cause injury jared we've, we've talked about on this podcast um that is right up there because if you tunnel someone and they land on their neck or on their back that that's just about as dangerous as it gets it's the same thing it's a disgusting act oh, that tunneling action nudging someone when they're in midair that was intentional it was graded as intentional and it clearly was intentional but that has the potential to cause some serious damage and i think it all depends on the way that you land i think the way that lewis young landed is actually pretty um pretty lucky because if someone lands on their neck what's going to happen yeah and and that's the thing that's an action that absolutely needs to be stamped out so i'm glad it is suspended it's clearly a suspendable act but 
on face value, you look at it and go one week. No, it probably should be more. But then there's that grading system. It was intentional. It was to the body and um, the impact was what was it? low or medium and it calculates to a one-week suspension. So again, that's one of these issues that I think the AFI needs to look at post-season. I just said the criteria was sound for the MRO. Maybe I need to take that back. <laughs> Let's move on. Uh, is the hype justified or is it hyperbole? The segment where I'll say a statement, you guys tell me whether hype is justified or I'm speaking in hyperbole. Christian, Dylan Moore has justified his elite ranking from champion data. Well, I would have thought so, yeah. Um, uh, he's, yeah, made us look good, hasn't he? Um, but There's no, always he's... one or two that champion data can come up with in the preseason. A few eyebrows get raised. So Dylan Moore, I mean, you know, I'll throw it. I'll throw up the name. Jeremy Finlayson come up as elite as a key forward coming into the 2022 season. We could see holes in that. And we sort of looked at it and said, okay, we'll, we'll go with the number because that's what the number's telling us. But we had to look deeper into it. Dylan Moore, when we looked at him coming out of his draft, he was an elite as a kid as well. So this hasn't surprised us. It's just that he hasn't received the recognition for what he does. So again, he's one of those blokes that everything he does has value. So he's above average or elite in everything he does, except for forward 50 marks. So he's not a big body that's taking marks up there, but pressure, ball use, ball winning, scoreboard hitting, um, and even some of his stoppage work in the forward half, it's all rated a leader above average. So he's just a, just a genuinely good footballer. But as I said, yeah, it was probably a few eyebrows raised when we had him elite as a general forward last year. But as I said, I go back to when we looked at him um, coming out of the under 18s, I think it was two or three years ago. And we had him in our top 10 sort of draftable players that year, even though he went pick 40 odd. So uh, it's always been a very, very, um, yeah, we we call them champion players, but yeah, he's a, he's a very statistical, friendly player. Jared, uh, you've taken a keen eye on the Hawks uh, this season, and, and you've seen a lot of things which you like. Uh, we talk about more and, and, and his impact, and you know, mm. kicking one and one point seven goals a game or whatever it is. But he also had thirty three touches on the weekend. Uh, the, yep. the style that um, Sam Mitchell has this club playing is is quite impressive for where we thought they'd be in, in terms of where their build is. Well, they're one of the clubs that have clearly exceeded expectations. Um, but when you look back at it, it actually might, it shouldn't surprise too many people, although it does. That, look, they're one of the those teams that have a really solid, I guess, spine and then are probably best 10 players of the team. So I'm, I'm talking, if I work my way down, Sam Frost, James Sicily, uh, Ben McAvoy when he's playing, Tom Mitchell, Jago Amira, Chad Wingard, Luke Bruce, Jack Dunstan, who are unusually inaccurate on the weekend and probably cost... Yeah. Uh, the Hawks, the game against Melbourne. Jarman Impey, Dylan Moore, as, as we've spoken about, should probably be in all Australian calculations, really. They've got a really solid top end, which is well supported by those guys who have been in the system now for a few years and are really cementing their spot. The one thing I love with what the Hawks have done is identify mature age state league plays and bring them into their senior program, which is probably one of the advantages of having Sam Mitchell coaching uh, the VFL side prior to taking over from Clarko because, you know, he had players like Lockie Bramble, who was a train on signing, uh, John Newcomb, who is an absolute jet, I think, a contested beast and a tackling machine. Sam Mitchell had these guys under his nose for quite a while and now they unearthed Jackson Callow uh, on the weekend, a progressive and, and really young but strong key forward who I think has a lot of potential. So I think their list is... Yeah probably not in too bad a spot, but you can see these players when they're, when they're out there and, and they're just backing themselves and playing this exciting brand. That's clearly the influence of the head coach for me. And I think Sam Mitchell, albeit they have a negative record right now, deserves a lot of credit. 
Absolutely. Fair enough. Uh, one that oh, I couldn't believe this when I saw this on the weekend, but, and we talked about the, the game in Cairns a little bit earlier, but in order for Port Adelaide to get there, they had to divert through Sydney because mm. Virgin Australia, who's one of the AFL's premier partners, does not have direct flights from Adelaide to Cairns. So the statement is, and I'm sure we can all agree with this, the AFL needs to stump up for direct flights for all road games for, for players and staff, surely Christian. Yeah, I'm I'm surprised that they didn't have that already. I know I know they've um, you know there's sometimes teams are allowed to leave um, later than usual flights and things like that, like fly out of Brisbane after nine and things like that. So I know the AFL has a little bit of pull with the airlines, but surprised to see that yeah, Power had so much trouble getting up there. Um, why why uh, foresight planning? I don't know what it is, but um, it just seems to me like in, in a professional league, in probably the most professional league we've got domestic league we've got in Australia, the fact that a team has to divert from, from Adelaide and then go via Sydney to Cairns for, for a three-hour flight, it just beggars belief. But uh, look, all's well that ends well for the power, JB uh, and Ken Hinckley. And, yeah. you know, a chance to go three on the trot this week when they host the Doggies. And and which airline did they take, was it? Uh, they took, well, Virgin, because Virgin is the premier partner of the AFL. Yeah. yeah. No, that's that stumps me a little bit as to why, uh, yeah, the AFL can't organise that. I don't know. The, the players shouldn't have to suffer for an issue that isn't in their in their hands and, you know, could hinder their preparation, which could cost them four points. Hey, couldn't it? But uh, one thing I want to mention, guys, I don't know if we're NBL fans here. I think we all are. But the Tassie Jack Jumpers got up over Melbourne United and made an inaugural uh, grand final last night, which I think is extraordinary. Maddie, mm. should we be worried about the Tasmania Jack Jumpers and their success in that state? Firstly, you can catch all of the NBL finals on ESPN uh, throughout the entire series. So make sure you do tune into the channel because there'll be a ripper between the Sydney Kings and the Jack Jumpers over the five games. So make sure you do tune in. Uh, Secondly, yeah, they really should be. I think Mm -hmm. if you look back 10 years in Tasmania, there were no professional teams. They had the the state cricketing side, sure. Uh, But Hawthorne and St Kilda were tenants at at York Park playing footy. Now they've got the Hobart Hurricanes who have a strong foothold in Hobart, but also in Launceston. And now you've got the Jack Jumpers who have made the grand final in their inaugural NBL season. All the while, the AFL sort of twiddled their thumbs on expansion down to Tasmania and the Apple Isle. And I just can see... Um, the tide shifting. Some of the things I read on Twitter, some of the things I read in the papers, um, you talk about, you know, young kids who are getting into involved and they're, they're playing basketball now instead of playing footy as much. Um, they're getting along to these games and, and getting sort of drawn into the NBL's presence. Uh, I, I don't know. I think the AFL has delayed and ummed and over this for long enough that it's starting to do damage to any potential expansion they have down south. And we're not the only code, um, Aussie rule. I mean, the, the A-Leagues are probably in the same boat as the AFL in not having a, a Tasmanian-based team. So the NBL do have a, 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 a head start here, I guess. But yeah, it, it'd be great to see, you know, young kids kicking footies in, in the crowd and holding footies. That, you know, they're all holding basketballs, which is great. But I think the success of the Jack Jumpers is something that the, um, yeah, not, not just the AFL, but other codes need to take note of. Absolutely. Hey, let's wrap things up for there for this week. Uh, I think we've blabbered on long enough on, on West Coast and a few other bits and pieces, but make sure you do get your footy tips in uh, Friday night games, two of them this week. Uh, so don't get uh, don't get too far away from the couch because there's plenty of action coming out this weekend, as there always is. You can tip with us, footytips.com.au forward slash ESPN footy pod if you want to join our competition. JB, thanks for stepping in at the last moment, jumping in for Jake. 
Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure as always. Uh, We'll get you on again soon. Christian, always good to speak with you and to everyone at home. We will speak to you in the next episode. Listen to all the latest episodes by subscribing to the ESPN Footy Pod wherever you get your podcasts.